1 Samuel chapter 24. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness in Jedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words, and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen, how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee. Yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and thee, and see and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not." For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, 
and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men got them up unto the hold. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Interestingly enough, this would not be the first time that David would go through an episode like this. Saul pursuing him. Saul being delivered into his hand. And yet David not taking his life as he certainly had the leverage to do had he desired it. When the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples in the matters of the kingdom of God, he really didn't say anything new when he said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It's in Matthew 5, verse 44. The chapter we've just read now from 1 Samuel 24, I think graphically illustrates the practice of that saying of Christ. Several centuries before Christ even came into this world, Saul certainly treated David as his enemy. He possessed an intense hatred for the man he considered to be his rival to the throne. He despitefully used David, and he persecuted him (coughs) by pursuing him all over Judah, putting to death anyone and everyone that he thought showed the slightest trace of allegiance to David, including a whole city of priests. But then he overstepped himself, as sinners generally do who fail to take into account that God rules and reigns. He entered the very cave where David and his men were hiding. He didn't enter it in pursuit of David. He entered it rather thinking it was a private place that would serve for him to relieve himself. And in the providence of God, he walked right into David's hands. It would certainly seem to be an opportune time for David to put an end to the conflict once and for all. His men saw it that way. Look at what they say to David in verse 4. Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Now just exactly what David's men were referring to by the Lord saying this to David is a matter of some speculation. I don't know that we have a record in the Bible of the Lord saying that to David. Some commentators reason that David's men are referring in general to the promises given to David pertaining to his rule once he became king. And certainly as king of Israel, his enemies would be defeated and his kingdom would be established and he would certainly have it in his power and authority to put to death anyone that he thought worthy of death. Be that as it may, the question that would be pressing on their minds would be, why didn't David take advantage of this opportunity? 
Here was a moment in the providence of God that David had never had and for all he knew at that time would never have again. Why would David not avail himself of that opportunity of smiting his pursuer? It's not hard to picture how quickly the anxiety of David's men would have arisen. Yet being so near to Saul in the cave, they had to probably stifle their speech and speak in whispers. Something that's never easy to do when you become very anxious about what seems to be a providential moment and there's disagreement about the course of action that ought to be adopted. I suspect that while their speech may have been stifled to whispers, their gestures were probably very loud, and their eyes were probably glaring at David in such a way that they were shouting at him to take advantage of the opportunity to do away with the man that had been trying for such a long time to do away with him. Now, it's not hard to come up with any number of explanations as to why David would not follow the advice of his men and do away with his adversary. For one thing, he was married to Saul's daughter. For another thing, his closest friend was Jonathan, the son of this king. David would not, however, make either of these two facts the basis for his restraint. His compelling argument is that he could not stretch forth his hand against Saul because Saul was the anointed of the Lord. He had been anointed to be king, king over Israel. He'd been chosen by God, just as David had been chosen. And Saul had been anointed by Samuel, just as David had been anointed by Samuel. However difficult and dangerous David found Saul to be, therefore, the simple fact was that David had respect toward God, and that in turn issued in respect toward Saul. Unworthy though Saul may be of that respect, David respected God. This is not to say, however, that David would do nothing. Indeed, what David would do would be something more powerful than simply executing his adversary. David would, spiritually speaking, heap coals of fire on the head of Saul by rewarding him good for evil. Saul saw David's actions exactly for what they were. It is Saul who says in verse 17, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee with evil. Do we not see in David's actions a demonstration of the words of Christ? When he says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is one of those sayings that I'm afraid many in the world and many Christians themselves have found to misapply in such a way that they think the Lord is teaching that Christians ought to be extreme pacifists. We'll do well to keep in mind, therefore, that the same Jesus who uttered that saying 
was the same one that went into the temple, consumed with the zeal for his father's house. He expressed that zeal by turning over the money changers' tables and chasing those out of the temple who had turned it from a house of prayer into a profitable business venture. Well, what about our Lord saying then, and what about the actions of David in this 24th chapter of 1 Samuel? This is an issue that each Christian has to understand, both in terms of what it means and what it doesn't mean. The subject requires much more extensive treatment than I'll give it this afternoon, but at the very least I want to consider the theme of rewarding good for evil, and I want you to consider that the Christian's duty is to reward good for evil. And in order for you to understand a few of the basics regarding this ethical principle, I want you to consider with me a few things that a Christian must understand in order to practice this precept. One, the Christian must understand the Christ-likeness of this precept. Here is a saying that every one of us can bring to the judgment seat of Christ. The words of Saul, Thou art more righteous than I. Who among us could fail to say that before the Lord? Thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. Is there anyone here who couldn't make that kind of confession? We have rewarded Christ with evil. We did so in our first father, Adam. We sinned in him. God created man righteous and holy. God endued man with every advantage. He had a perfect environment. He possessed the knowledge of God. God was his portion every day, and man was perfectly blessed. But what did man do in order to reward God for such blessings? He despised the authority of God. He defiled himself and destroyed himself, and by eating of the forbidden fruit, he basically broke every commandment of God. He set up himself to be God, thus worshiping the creature above God. He thus used God's name in vain. He robbed God. He killed. He committed spiritual adultery. He coveted. He broke them all. Some have suggested that he did this even on the Sabbath day, which would have had him breaking that commandment too. God had every right to condemn sinful man to everlasting destruction in that instant, but instead God rewarded man with good. He gave the promise of a Savior before he shut man out of the garden. Just as David spared the life of Saul, so God spared the life of mankind. Now it's true that God has allowed man to see the fruit of his sin develop throughout the history of civilization. Rather amazing, isn't it, how quickly sinful man can blame God for the suffering and misery of the world. Why does God allow it? Why doesn't God do something about it? God must not be all-powerful or all-loving. He may be one or the other, but he couldn't possibly be both, sinful man reasons. 
And the thing that's overlooked in such silly and rebellious reasoning is the awful truth that suffering and misery is man's fault, not God's. It's due to man's sin, not God's goodness. And yet God rewards man in spite of his sin by providing hope. In David's day, it was the hope of a Redeemer to come. In our day, it's the hope of a Redeemer that has already come and is going to come again. And what about that time when Christ came? Was he not rewarded evil? In spite of the fact that he had gone all over the countryside doing good? He was nevertheless maligned and persecuted. So we read in John 10 and verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews would not stone Christ, however, not on that occasion. He would continue to do good. He would heal many of their diseases and afflictions. He would cast out demons. He would restore sight to the blind. But alas, the time would come when sinful man would reward Christ for his goodness. They would reward him by condemning him. They would reward him by scourging him. They would reward him with a crown of thorns, and then they would reward him by nailing him to a cross and suspending that cross, suspending Christ on that cross between heaven and earth. Isn't that the very epitome of man rewarding evil for good, but Christ rewarding good for evil? Rather than call on the angels that could have delivered him, he would instead pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At the very time that men would be most evil, Christ would be most good. We have nailed him to a cross by our sins. He has rewarded us with salvation by his atoning death. This is why I say that the precepts spoken by Christ and demonstrated years earlier by David should be viewed as nothing short of conformity to Christ. He continues to this day to reward us with good, even when we reward him with evil. He continues to give us grace. He continues to forgive our sins. He continues to love us with an everlasting love. He's preparing a place for us, and he continues to hold out to us the promise of heaven and everlasting life. Now, some may think that it must have been a hard thing for David to spare Saul. After the way Saul had been pursuing David, imposing great hardship on him, forcing him to have to move his family to avoid Saul's anger, forcing him to live in hiding in order to avoid being killed. And many of us, if we're honest, will have to acknowledge that we find it hard to treat people right that we know are not worthy of that treatment or respect. They certainly don't treat us that way, we reason. Why should we treat them that way? Well, the reason is because we don't think the way the world thinks. When you find it hard, therefore, to manifest the love of Christ, you need to think more about Christ. 
you and I have never been treated more unfairly than Christ was treated by sinners. And his response was to give himself to be a ransom for many. His response was to shed his blood to atone for our sins. If we'll but remember what he deserved and what he received from the hands of sinful men, and if we'll remember that he's given us in return salvation, then we really won't find it too hard to reward others with good, even when we've been rewarded, so to speak, with evil. That's the first thing I'd like you to see then about this precept demonstrated by David, how Christ-like it is. And then I want you to see about this precept that the Christian must have a strong sense of conviction in order to follow it. At first, David seemed willing to take the advice of his men. We read in verse 4, And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. It was upon hearing those words and observing the unusual circumstance that brought Saul right up to him, that we go on to read in verse 4, Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. This action seems initially to be the preludes to cutting off Saul himself. But then look at the response of David's heart to his action in verse 5. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. He would not take the easy path he would not go the way his men advised. In fact, he would go so far as to not allow them to go that way either. Verse 7 tells us that David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. The word stayed is an interesting word that carries the idea in the original of dividing or splitting. Young's literal translation reads, David subdued his men by words. The picture then that emerges from this word on closer examination is that David divided himself from his men. He took a different position than theirs, and having taken a different position, he then prevailed over his men by not allowing them to rise against Saul. Why this change of mind? Why this course of action? Why this seeming division now between David and his men? And the answer is, of course, because of the strength of David's conscience. That's the meaning of the term heart when we read the statement, David's heart smote him. It was his conscience that smote him with conviction that this was not the right way or the right time, even though the moment seemed to be such an opportune moment. A man of lesser conviction would have taken the easier path. 
A man who could stifle his conscience would not have found the fortitude to resist others who didn't possess the same conviction. Those with no sense of conviction will always follow the crowd. They'll go with the flow, so to speak. It certainly is inspiring, therefore, to read of a character in the Old Testament that not only has convictions, but also has the courage of his convictions. At times, there's a great difference between the two. Very often, Christians know the right course of action to take, or they know the course of action to be avoided, but there are times when they just don't have the courage of those convictions. I can remember when I was in what was called the Preacher Boys class down at Bob Jones, just a student. And on one occasion, uh, the teacher of the chorus was presenting us with true-to-life situations that ministers had, uh, had undergone. And he was reading this situation to us and then asking us what the right course of action would have been taken for that minister to take. And in every instance, the, uh, the course of action was so obvious, you know, it was unanimous and all the hands going up. Yeah, this would have been the right thing to do. And then the teacher reported to us that the minister did just the opposite, or that he failed to do what was obviously righteous. I remember thinking afterwards, if you were to put those ministers in this class, do you think they would have answered any differently than we did? They all knew what was right. They just didn't have the courage to do what was right. It takes the courage of convictions. We're coming up on midterm elections in this nation in the not-too-distant future. And among the things that we need to pray for, Lord, raise up men to represent us in office who will not only have the right convictions, but will also have the courage of those convictions. Oftentimes there's a great gap between the two. David is certainly manifesting then the character traits of a leader in the narrative by responding to his conscience. It doesn't matter to him what was expedient. It didn't matter to him what others might think. He knew that the action would be wrong to execute Saul. And even though his conviction would prolong his hardship, he must nevertheless do what's right and avoid what's wrong. Well, I think we'll leave it there with David. Maybe we'll take up this chapter again. There's a couple other points that I'd like to point out, but I think we'll split this over two sessions. For now, let's just take in that we have here a man in this chapter who had the courage of his convictions and who would reward good for evil by sparing a man that, frankly, wasn't worthy of being spared. And let's remember Christ in this instance, who certainly has rewarded good, even though he received so much evil. Oh, may we live by 
Christ-like ethics and a Christ-like example, even when it can be challenging. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the lessons that are clearly brought out in thy word. We thank thee that we have a graphic illustration in this historical narrative of what Christ meant when he said we're to love our enemies, do good to those that despitefully use us and persecute us. And we thank thee that when Christ called on his followers to render obedience to that precept, he was calling on them to do the very thing that he himself would do, rendering good when he himself would receive so much evil. So Lord, help us to remember our Savior and help us to be like him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.